Well, glad you're here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, again, we're, we're going to spend more time in First Chronicles than any place else. You can turn to First Chronicles 21. And as always, you can follow along, as Luke said, online on our service page. Uh, the link's there. It'll follow on along with the scriptures uh, that we'll be covering. Uh, just as a reminder, we've been in this series through the summer, and the title of the series is What Happened, Tell Me. And remember that the book, books we've been looking at have kind of started out that way, that there was the death of King Saul, King David was anointed, he becomes king, and as a result of that, we've got this story of God telling us what happened. And that's what the Bible is. It's, the, it's God's story telling us what happened and even giving us the why behind it most of the time. And 1 Chronicles, 2 Samuel, those two books are mirror kind of images of each other. They have some different stories and some different things. But basically, it's just giving us the foundation. It's laying out the foundation of what will happen one day when Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, will come back. And it kind of lays the foundation of what a true king should look like, what a false king looks like, and then allows us to know that even in the midst of what we are living through and living in, that God has told us why things are happening because he loves us, because he wants us to know. And he doesn't want to hide himself from us, but to have a relationship with us, even though we mess things up as badly as David does, as we've read through the story of First Chronicles uh, and Second Samuel. And remember, all the podcasts are online, so if this is something you want to go back and and listen to, or if you want to listen to any of the other um, almost 50 books that we've covered as a church, they're there online. We preach through the scripture. You can find those books, and you can go through each one of those books. And the goal is in a few years to have preached through all of the Bible, and, so, and then we'll start over. So just so you know. And um, this morning, what I want us to talk about is temple building. Temple building. Now, you might think, well, I've never built a temple, Right? But you are. You're constantly building something. When you eat, the food goes into your body and it helps you build this temple, this bodily temple, right? If you're going to school, you're building and helping IU, if you're here, build temples. That's what they do. You, your money helps to build all the buildings and classes and the things that you see and then all the management and professors and all the stuff that goes into making that happen. And IU loves to tell their story about their temples, don't they? They like to tell you, they like to put names of their heroes on their temples, right, in the buildings. It's what we do. It's who we are. It's this idea that we need to leave something beyond us, a legacy, that, that we know that, that, that death, death is coming, that there's an end to, to our story, but we hope that we won't be forgotten, that we'll be remembered, there'll be something more. And the reality is, all of you will be forgotten. All of you. I will be forgotten. And I've said this before, but tell me just one, one of the great emperors of the Aztecs. Tell me one of the great emperors of the Incas, one of the great, maybe you know, maybe one of the great Caesars. I know Julius, right? That one, right? The, the major, how about one major person of the Chinese dynasties? And you say, oh yeah, the Ming, they made those vases, all right? That's what you, you come up with something. You see, you can't even tell me your great, great, great grandfather's name, can you? You're going to be forgotten on this earth. What's important for us to understand is that God lays out in Scripture that if we know him and if we're connected to him, we will never be forgotten. That's why he gives us all the genealogies. It's why he lays out all these things. It's because he wants to tell us exactly what will happen when we choose to build what he asks us to build and not build what we want. And he wants to give us confidence that if you're involved in that process, you are leaving a legacy. It doesn't matter what you build on this earth, what you have on this earth. There's something bigger going on that you're a part of. And even though it may seem insignificant now, and if it's not insignificant now, it will be insignificant three generations from now when you're forgotten. And that's okay. Because God's doing something supernatural, not natural, something bigger. 
And that's what we want to look at this morning. Remember the life of David. We've laid this out week after week. How he was anointed at age 11. He became a musician for the king, uh, King Saul at age 12. He kills Goliath at age 15. At age 20, he's a commander in Saul's army because of how God is with him. At age 25, he's threatened by Saul. And he has to go on the run for his life because Saul's jealous of David. At age 28, he ends up fighting for the Philistines, but then leaves the Philistines when Saul, King Saul, is killed and his sons are killed. And David is just broken over that, even though Saul wanted to kill him. We look at age 30, he's anointed king of Judah, but it's another seven years before he's anointed the king of Israel. David has to wait from age 11 to age 37 before he actually sees his kingship happen. That's a long time. David wants to build a temple for God after that. He begins to take it easy. In the midst of taking it easy, instead of doing what God said he should do as a king and go fight, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. His family is a mess. He doesn't hold his kids accountable to the Old Testament and to God. As a result, one of his kids overthrows his kingdom, Absalom. David gets so depressed about it, he literally quits and hands over the kingdom to Absalom. He's depressed, he's done. His son's rebellion causes him to be killed and he loses his son. And as a result, through the encouragement of others, David is restored as king and David's heart is restored before God. Then there's division in the kingdom. Then David decides to take an illegal census, which we looked at last week, how dangerous it can be when we start counting the things of this world instead of counting counting on the things of God. And this week, we see God, David coming to the end of his life. He's probably almost 70 at this point. He's coming to the end wondering, what's my legacy? He's probably looking back on his life, seeing all the mistakes, seeing that he wanted to build a temple for God, but God said he couldn't. No, you're not going to. And what's David's response to all of that? And David decides to go on a temple building project, but he hands it off to his son. And I want to look at that this morning. Last week we ended with this, the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses made in the desert and the altar of burnt offering were at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord because he was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel. Remember, David took the illegal census. God had him make an offering, but he didn't make an offering in the temple. He made it at a separate place. And then David is reminded of the fact that God is alive and well in his tabernacle. Remember, God asked the people to build a tabernacle for him. God never wanted to be separated from his people. But you know what? We keep wanting to be separate from him. We don't want to be too close to God because we're like David. We're terrified to give God control if we're really honest. We are terrified that we won't get what we want. We won't be able to build the things we want to build if I actually fully surrender to God and give him control Because I don't know if I fully trust him and I'm terrified if I'm really honest when I read scripture of what he might ask of me based on what I've seen in this book. And to be honest, most of us don't want to deal with that. We want to ignore it. We want to move on and we want to look around us and say, well, what do other nations have? What do other Christians have? What does the world around us have? Well, I'll build that. Because obviously God must be with him because things are working out well for him. So I'll just do it their way. Instead of going to God... Not in terror, but in confidence that he wants a relationship with you. And David in this moment of terror begins to think probably to himself, what's going to be my legacy? You got to remember, God wanted to be close to Adam and Eve in the garden and they said, no, we reject God and we take the fruit. They chose the fruit. They chose to build something different than God asked them to build. Then they built a tower of Babel. God told them not to build a tower. He said to scatter. And they said, no, we're going to come together and be unified to do something big for God. And they build a tower and God comes down and confuses all the languages and scatters them like he said they should have scattered in the first place. You see, all the way through scripture, God doing this, when they're on the mountain, God wants to speak to them directly and they say, no, 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 you speak to Moses and we'll listen. We don't want to get that close to you. And it said that God's heart was broken by that. By the people not wanting, being terrified of him because they saw the the glory of God and thought, oh, I don't want to be near that instead of, wow, if there's any way I could be near that, I pray I, I might be. 
And as a result, we'll see in a minute, they turn again away from God. All the way through Scripture, we see people building barriers to get to God. Now, does God sometimes give them barriers? Yes, the tabernacle was a barrier to keep them from his holiness. But the tabernacle was made with skins, if you remember. Most of the tabernacle was was out of the skins of animals. It was to show them that something had to die so that they could enter into God's presence. And that's what we find out in the New Testament, that God himself was giving a picture that he would come one day, he would die, and he would build for us what we could never build for ourselves, a relationship with him. And all of the Old Testament is giving us pictures and images of what God is trying to communicate about himself. And so often we try to do things for God that we think he will be impressed by, right? Our entire world has the fear of man trying to impress man all the time versus recognizing that if I go before God and I seek him and I confess my sins, he will allow me to have his favor, right? And then he will give me the favor of the men he wants me to be with. And I can trust him and give him control that I can't get for myself. And so pick up the story in chapter 22. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David gave orders to gather the foreigners that were in the land of Israel, and he appointed stone cutters to cut finished stones for building God's house. David supplied a great deal of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gate, gateways and for the fittings, together with an immeasurable quantity of bronze and innumerable, innumerable cedar logs, because the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians had brought a large quantity of cedar logs to David. This is a big project. <laughs> this is huge. And David has decided, after knowing the tabernacle and the altar, that God needs something bigger. So he decides to to build this temple or to get ready to build this temple. Now, I have a confession to make before you. This is a passage. If I have to look at all the scripture and some of the hardest passages for me to wrestle through, this is one of the hardest. And the reason is because it's amazing to me how God will use stupidity for his glory, right? He does it all the time. He turns everything around for his glory, but that doesn't mean that that's exactly what he wanted. He allows us to do things so that he can show us his glory and show us who he is. And I think that I struggle with this because I wonder, was, was the temple supposed to be built or not? We know that God, after the temple was built by Solomon, came down and filled the presence of the temple. He he, he came down and actually filled the Holy of Holies that we read about later in the stories of Scripture. But just because he does that, does that mean he approves of it all? No, just like in the New Testament, God says that when we come to know Jesus Christ, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. Does that mean he approves of everything in our life? Nope. He comes in to begin to clean house, not say our house is so wonderful, (laughs) right? And so often when we look in Scripture and we look at the temple and we look at building things, it's almost like we want to build something and sit back and say, oh, see, look at what I've done, instead of saying, look at who God is. We always want to look at what God does. We don't want to just look at Him. And it's such an easy Trap, And so just because God allows or uses something for his glory does not mean that it was right for it to be done necessarily. Just because he allows us to do something doesn't mean, well, that's exactly right. He allowed Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit in the garden. It was a wonderful tree. The tree of of the knowledge of good and evil was a good tree till they ate it. (laughs) Right? And so I wrestle with this because I don't know, even to this day when I read through Scripture, and hopefully as I show you this today, that you'll wrestle with the fact that, yes, God used a temple. God used it to represent himself. But you'll pause for a minute and look and just ask the question that I can't find too many people that are willing to ask, and that's this. Should they have even built one in the first place? Because that's not a question we like to ask. Well, I did it. God allowed it. He blessed it. So it must be right. Maybe. So I just want us to wrestle. I could, be, I could be overthinking this, to be honest with you. But as I look through Scripture, man, I wrestle with this. 
Because I have watched, you ready for this? For over almost 2,000 years, I have watched Christianity go on a building project. Not quite 2,000, about 1,700, maybe 1,600 years. When the Catholic Church began to be established as the church, they went on a building program. And we still are doing it today. I have to have a building. I have to have all this stuff. i got to show off for God. Who says so? The greatest revivals that have ever happened in the history of God's people happened outside of a building. Do you realize that? The greatest revivals we've ever had even in our own country happened in the countryside with, with, with circuit preachers and preachers out, not in major cathedrals. David goes on and says this. This is what I would challenge you with. The people of God in the book of Exodus, it's easy for us to build things and slap God's name on it. To think that we're building something for God when in reality we're building something for ourselves. If you look at Exodus 32, this is when the people have been delivered out of the slavery of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They come up to Mount Sinai where God wants to have a relationship with them. Moses has gone up into the presence of God, into the fiery cloud on the mountain, and he hasn't returned. He's been there a long time. And the people who said they would listen to Moses get tired of waiting. Let me say that again. They get tired of waiting. Let me say it a third time. They get tired of waiting. You Sound familiar? You get tired of waiting? I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. That's exactly what they do. They decide to build something. You ready for this? For God. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Aaron was the priest, come make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Jump to verse 6. Then they said, Israel, this is your God. So they fashion a golden calf. Aaron participates in the stupidity. He has them bring all their gold stuff together, like David donated all the bronze, all the cedar. They bring all their gold. They melt it down. They make a golden calf. Aaron says, here's the thing you wanted, a golden calf for you. Then all the people said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They didn't create a new God. They created a calf and then put God's name on it. And it is so easy for you and I to do that. Then it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord, or before it. Then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Great. We're going to build this thing and we're going to have a party. That's the best thing ever because that's just going to show that God was with us. So that's what they do. Early the next morning they arose, they offered burnt offerings, which God said to offer burnt offerings to him. And since this golden calf is our God, we're going to offer burnt offerings to it and presented fellowship offerings. That's the unity offering and we're all unified. We're going to fellowship around this golden calf that we say is our God, that we put his name on and we're going to fellowship around it. We're unified, praise the Lord. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to play. It is, it is a high moment of look at us, look at what God's done, look at, oh, this is wonderful. And then Moses comes off the mountain. And when he comes down off the mountain, because God says, the people have turned away from me. They're no longer trusting me. They built something for themselves. Moses comes down and it is horrible. There is death, swords are raised, people are killed. The golden calf is actually taken down to dust and he makes everyone drink it. (laughs) Because the anger of the Lord is like, why would you do this? Why can't you wait on me to do the work in you, to build what I want to build? Why do you have to go build something and not trust me? This is an incredible picture of what we're talking about. And they were all excited about what they built. Everybody was unified around what they built. The nations around them would have said, wow, God must be with them because they're celebrating and they have food and they're feasting and it's wonderful. And God is shaking his head going, I didn't ask you to build that. Goes on and says this in 2 Chronicles. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced. 
And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly great and famous and glorious in all the lands. Why? Did God say he wanted a house that was exceedingly glorious and wonderful in all the lands? God said he was fine with a tabernacle. Goes on, it says, therefore I must make provision for it. So David made lavish provisions before it, before his death. Remember what Deuteronomy said? Deuteronomy 17 that we've looked at like multiple times. That in Deuteronomy 17, God said, you're going to want a king when you get into the promised land. You shouldn't have a king. I want to be your king, but I'm going to give you a king because you want a king. And then you're going to suffer because of that king, and then you'll turn back to me. That's basically what God told them. In verse 17 of chapter 17, Deuteronomy, he says, A king must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. How many wives does David have? Many. How many wives does his son Solomon end up having? 700. 700 wives. They are not listening to God in this moment. And then he goes on. He says he must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Now the argument can be made that David was acquiring the silver and gold and bronze and all the things, not for himself, but for the Lord. But we just read where they took a bunch of gold, made a calf, and said it's for the Lord, and it wasn't for the Lord. And so here you have him gathering all these resources up for something he wants to do. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of the instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It's to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord God, to observe the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. That is key. Listen. The tendency that we have is to build something and then say, I'm greater than. Look at what I did compared to what they did. That's our tendency. It's who we are. It's to prove something that like God's closer with us than he could be with them. No, God says you need to write this down and keep it so you never become a king like that. You never become a leader like that, a person who has that attitude. You need to recognize I delivered you, not you. I took you out of Egypt. You didn't deserve it. I'm fulfilling covenants that you didn't make with people you didn't know. (laughs) He goes on and he says, he will not turn from the right or the left of this command and his sons will continue ruling for many years over Israel. We know this. That David's son Solomon rules, and right after that, the kingdom begins to fall apart. The kingdom is split. And it's not too long after that that there are no more rulers sitting on the throne in Israel. And oh, by the way, Israel today doesn't have a king physically sitting on the throne in Jerusalem and in Israel. Spiritually, there's a king that's always been on the throne, but not physically. It goes on and it says this, 1 Chronicles 17, if you remember when David had the dream of building something for the, for the Lord and Nathan said, do what's on your heart, Nathan looked at him and said, go to my, or God told Nathan, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Read, listen, tune into these words real quick because we're going to compare David's words with what God's word said to David. There's going to be a comparison here. We're going to play a little game. So tune in. He says this, this is what the Lord says. You're not the one to build me a house to dwell in. From the time I brought Israel out of Egypt until today, I've not lived in a house. Instead, I've moved from tent to tent and from tabernacle to tabernacle. Remember, they had to keep rebuilding the tabernacle. So like when the skins went bad, they put on new skins. So the tabernacle of David's day probably had very little left that was original from the the original tabernacle because it rotted. It went bad. They had to replace stuff, right? Then it goes on, it says, In all my travels throughout Israel, have I ever spoken a word to even one of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? God's like, have I ever asked? No. It goes on, it says this, Furthermore, verse 10, I declare to you that the Lord himself will build a house for you. When your time comes to be with your fathers, David's thinking about being told this. He's getting ready to die. He's 70. He's coming to the end of his life. When the time comes for you to be with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant. That doesn't necessarily mean his son. It just means a descendant. (laughs) Not the one I choose, but God's going to do it. And then he says, who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. 
I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. I will not take away my faithful love from him as I took it from the one who was before you. That's Saul, by the way. King Saul, I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. So God is saying that through you, David, I'm going to do something supernatural and amazing that will last for eternity. Not something temporary that people can see and then one of your kids is going to have. It's bigger than that. In 2 Samuel 7, he said it this way. He says, I will raise up after you, David, a descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a, like, or he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. God is saying, I am making with you an eternal promise. And see what happens is we get these ideas of these eternal promises that God wants to build his kingdom and then we go, well then I got to get kingdom building right now. I got to bring God's kingdom now. I got to make kingdom stuff happen now. Instead of just saying, I can walk simply with God and trust him with what he tells me in his word and what is written and so I don't have to store up a bunch of treasures. I can put the the word next to my throne and remind myself that I'm no better than anybody else, which then gives me the ability to give it away, to be merciful instead of trying to hoard it. That's the reminder that God gives here. He goes on, he says, Then he summoned his son Solomon and instructed him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. Talk about pressure. (laughs) You're going to do this. I've stored up all this wealth. I've done all this for you. Now, buddy, you do it goes on and says this, my son David said to Solomon, it was on my heart or in my heart to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God, but the word of the Lord came to me. Read this. You have shed much blood and waged great wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you've shed so much blood on the ground before me. I challenge you to go through the Bible and find anywhere where God actually said this to David. Now, did God speak to David? Yes. Could God have said this to David at another time that we don't have written down? Yes, but that is not what God told Nathan to tell David. It's not in any of Nathan's prophecies to David. It's not written to David. Could he have thought that's why God may have done this because of the blood? Possibly, I don't know. Can we trust David? Yeah, I think we could probably trust David. Maybe God did speak to him, but here's what I know. It's not written anywhere else that God told him, this is why I won't let you build a temple. God said, I want to build the temple. That's why you're not building a temple. That's what we have written. Now, if we go ahead and build one, is God like, okay, I'm done with you. I dismiss you. You're no longer my child. Get out of, no, not necess- that's not what God does in scripture. That's not how he does things. He walks alongside of it. He's like, okay, yeah, we got that to deal with now. Okay, let's deal with it. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it right, right? I'm going to do this. Great. If you're going to do it, here's how it has to be done. You're going to have to follow every specific rule of how it has to be done. And when you read the Old Testament, Solomon was given all of these rules of exactly how every single thing had to be done. And it consumed his entire kingdom. It consumed all of the foreigners and slaves. It consumed everyone to do, have to do it perfectly. It was overwhelming. And that led to the split of the kingdom. It's amazing to me how many churches I've been a part of or seen that right after a building campaign almost always go through a church split. I've seen it happen three times personally. Now, is that because you're declaring this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, and some people are like, I'm out of here, I I don't want to be a part? Sure. Some people leave for wrong reasons. I get that. But when you begin to leverage everything for a certain path, And you say, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. Everybody around you starts to put the math together in their head and go, I don't know if I want to do that. Every building campaign I've ever been a part of, I have watched the missions giving go from here to here after the building's completed. Every time. 
Because once those people leave and once the conflict happens and once you have to, you don't realize how much maintenance and everything and all that it takes, it's amazing to me to watch. We've got to pay bills. We've got to pay pastors. We've got to pay things. And so we, we're going to have to cut something. What do we cut? Missions is always the first thing that gets cut. Always, always, always. They're not looking at their staff and saying, hey, you're still on our staff, but we need you to go get another job. We need you to tent make like Paul. That doesn't happen because they know if they do that, you know what those staff will do and those shepherds will do? They'll run. They'll go find a new church, a better church that will pay them full time and give them benefits. Guys, I'm just stating the picture that I see and I've seen over and over again. Is it wrong to have buildings? Nope. Is it wrong to build buildings? No. It's wrong to think that's going to fix something because it doesn't fix. It just makes the problems bigger that we're not dealing with. And David is a master at not dealing with issues, especially in his own family. He goes on, he says this. But a son will be born to you. He will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name will be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet in Israel during his reign. He is one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So God says here, yes, Solomon is the one. Solomon is the one that I'm going to bless and that I'm going to pour my life out into and he is going to have peace and I'm going to use him to build a house for my name. Again, the interpretation becomes a physical house right now during his reign. No, God said I'm going to build a house that will never end. He goes on and says this. Then David comforted his wife. This is in 2 Samuel 12 where God talks about Solomon. Remember, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He married her. The first child died. And now God blessed David and Bathsheba with another child. She gives birth to a son and named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message through Nathan the prophet who named Solomon Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. How can the son who came from adultery and murder be the most beloved of the sons? Because that's how amazing God's grace is. And that should just make your heart like jump a beat. When you realize that there's a God, no matter what your circumstances, where you came from, the mess you've been in, that looks down with mercy and grace and says, I love you. You are beloved to me. That's why he named him Jedidiah is because Solomon would forever be known in that kingdom as the illegitimate son. And God said he is not illegitimate, he's mine. Does that mean he's going to act perfectly? Nope, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He didn't listen to Deuteronomy chapter 17 at all. And yet God still loved him. And so even if you're dealing with sin, even if you're struggling, even if you're building things you shouldn't build, God is still trying to get your heart. It's why Solomon wrote three books, and the last book is Ecclesiastes, and it's a book of misery. It's Solomon saying, woe is me, woe is me, there's nothing under the sun worth living for, I don't know what I'm going to do, oh yeah, fear God, enjoy your life and die. That's basically the book of Ecclesiastes. That's how Solomon ends his life. He said, I denied myself nothing. I built anything I wanted. I took anything I wanted. And in the end, God just brought me to a place where he showed me that no matter what I build, no matter how many relationships I have, no matter how many treaties I make, no matter how much peace, I'm going to be miserable if I'm not focused and surrendered to him. See, this is what God does. He engineers our failure so that we'll see his greatness. Because this world is failing all around us and we keep trying to make it great. It's not going to be great. You realize Jesus is not going to come back when we've made the world great for him. (laughs) He's going to come back when the world's a disaster. (laughs) Not great. Goes on and says this. Now my son, may the Lord be with you and may you succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he said about you. Above all, may the Lord give you insight and understanding when he puts you in charge of Israel so you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Amazingly, God answers this prayer of David's. And Solomon prays for wisdom and he becomes one of the wisest men to ever live. Goes on and says, then you will succeed if you carefully follow the statutes and ordinances the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. That includes Deuteronomy 17 that Solomon didn't listen to. 
Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Maybe David, in his own fear of God, recognized, I don't want my son to be as afraid of God as I am. You can trust him. Even though there's that, that angst, you can trust him. You don't have to be afraid. He goes on. Notice, I've taken great pains to provide for the house of the Lord. 3,775 3, tons of gold. That's a lot of gold. 37,750 tons of silver and bronze and iron that can't be weighed because there's too much of it. I've also provided timber and stone, but you'll need to add more to them. What? More? Yeah, it's never enough. More, more, more. And then it goes on. You also have many workers, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and people skilled in every kind of work. In other words, David was great at building infrastructure and training people to do all the jobs he needed them to do so he could build what he wanted to build, which is the argument we're having today in our own culture. In gold and silver and bronze and iron beyond number, now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. This, this moment seems like, oh yeah, this is exactly what the Lord wanted. This is exactly what the Lord allowed to happen. I still don't know reading biblically if it's what he wanted. And here's why. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can be a slave of two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. There'll be a tension all the time between those two things. Second Chronicles, it goes on, it says, Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. The Lord your God is with you, isn't he? The correct answer is yes, because God made a covenant with them. But that doesn't mean everything we do is what God wanted, right? Then he goes on and he says, um, And hasn't he given you rest on every side? For he has handed the land's inhabitants over to me, and the land has been subdued before the Lord and his people. Now, determine in your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. That is a great word from David in that moment. No matter what happens, no matter what you're doing, you've got to determine that you're going to seek the Lord with your mind and your whole heart. Now again, I go back to the golden calf. They thought they were seeking the Lord with their whole life. They were having a party, they were sacrificing, they were doing it all, and they missed it. But at least David said it. And then he says, get started building the Lord's sanctuary so that you may bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy articles to God, to the temple that is to be built for the name of Yahweh. Hey, at least he's building the temple for the name of Yahweh and not some other name. That, that's a good thing. When David was old and full of days, he installed his son Solomon as king over Israel. Then he gathered all the leaders of Israel, the priests and the Levites. Another good thing David did, he did a handoff to Solomon. He didn't wait until he was dead and keep all the power for himself. He transferred power to Solomon. That's something that most kings won't do because they want to keep control till their dying day. At least David was willing to give up control. And then it says, then he gathered all the leaders of Israel, the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old or older, were counted, and the total number of men was 38,000 by head count. The Levites were not supposed to be counted. We read that last week, at least not in the military sense. Yet David counts them for the spiritual sense. I don't know if that was right or not. I struggle with that because the Levites weren't supposed to be counted, but he did it. Of these, David said, 24,000 are to be in charge of the work on the Lord's temple. That's a lot of people. 6,000 are to be officers and judges. Why? Because you need people watching the finances and managing the project. 4,000 are to be gatekeepers, and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the instruments that I've made for worship. David made that many instruments for worship? Holy smokes. Then it goes on. Then David divided them into divisions according to Levi's sons. Amron's sons, Aaron and Moses, Aaron, along with his descendants, was set apart forever to consecrate the most holy things, to burn incense in the presence of Yahweh, to minister to him, and to pronounce blessings in his name forever. As for Moses, the man of God, his sons were named among the tribe of Levi. These were the sons of Levi by their ancestral houses, the heads of families, according to their registration by name and the head count, 20 years old or more, who worked in the service of the Lord's temple. At least David's taking seriously who's supposed to be doing what jobs. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The divisions of the descendants of Aaron were as follows, and the entire chapter lays that out. You jump to chapter 25. David and the officers of the army also set apart some of the sons of Aspha, Hermine, 
and Judithan, who were, who were to prophesy accompanied by lyres, harps, and cymbals. This is the list of the men who performed their service, and there's a whole list. All these men were under their own father's authority for the music and the Lord's temple with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of God's temple. Aspa, Judithan, and Heman were under the king's authority. They numbered 288 together with their relatives who were all trained and skillful in music for the Lord. They cast lot for their duties, young and old alike, teacher as well as pupil. This is some serious, crazy, dominating worship. This temple is dominating everything at this moment. Not bad, but at least David's taking it seriously. He's understanding that if we do this, it's going to require all of our effort. Everybody on board. Nobody can dissent if this is what we're going to do. And that's often what happens when we decide to try to build something on this side of eternity. It requires us moving people out of the way that are in the way so that we can build the thing we want to build. God does the same thing. He moves people out of the way so he can build what he wants to build. Again, this happened. The temple was built. God used the temple. I still question in my heart, is this the way it should or could have gone down. In chapter 26, it says this entire chapter in 26, almost the entire chapter is about how to handle money. It's about all these people that have to be in charge of all the resources because there's so much of it that David has to have people in charge of the treasuries of God's temple, the treasuries of what's been dedicated, the treasury of the temple, in charge of the other treasuries, the treasuries of what's been dedicated to King David, the outside duties of officers and judges and overseers in every matter relating to God and King. This is going to consume everyone. This is the list of the Israelites, the heads of the family, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds, and their officers who served the king in every matter to, to do with the divisions that were rooted, or I'm sorry, rotated military duty each month of the year. David count the men, or David didn't count the men aged 20 or under, for the Lord had, uh, the Lord had said he would make Israel as numerous as the stars of heaven. Joab, son of Uriah, began to count them, but they didn't complete it. There was wrath against Israel because of this census, and the number was not entered into the, into the historical record of King David. So even God talking about all these numbers, he recognizes that we have all these numbers, but I, I'm not going to enter those numbers. Those, they're not important because they were taken wrongly. Like it goes back to this mess, and listen, we should be encouraged that God uses the mess that as I walk through the mess of this life, as I make mistakes, as I try to figure this out, that God is in heaven saying, I've got this. I'm still pouring out my mercy. I'm still pouring out my covenant. Are there consequences? Absolutely. But I've not given up on people. I've not given up on you. That's the encouragement of this, whether the temple was supposed to be built or not built. It goes on, it says this. David ascended all the leaders of Israel and Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the divisions of the king's service, the commanders of the thousand, the commanders of the hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and the cattle of the king and his sons, along with the court officials, the fighting men, and all the brave warriors. That's a lot of people assembled. Then King David rose to his feet. Remember, that's kind of a big deal. I think that's why it's written there. It's because David was really old. And if you're really old, you know how hard it is to rise to your feet. Correct? You're like, I got, oh, I got to get up. I don't want to get up. Right? I mean, last night, Clint came in because the garage door wasn't shutting, and I had already gone to bed because I was exhausted because I moved Malia yesterday, and I was just tired. And so the garage door was blocked, like the sensor. A, a, a spider built a web in front of the sensor between the time that I came home at 5 p.m. and 11.30 at night. A spider got real busy and built a web. So when Clint put the garage door up, he tried to put it back down, and it's just doing this. You know what I mean? So he comes up, he gets me, he says, Dad, the garage door won't go down. I'm like, oh. And I'm... Don't have clothes on, basically. I got to put clothes on. I got to go downstairs. And I'm like in a daze, and I'm like wiping off the sensors. And I come back, and I push the button, and it closes. I go, this is a spider. And then I went back to bed. Hopefully, I didn't say anything else or do anything else inappropriate, because I have no idea what I did or remembered. But I remember thinking this. I have to get up right now. I don't want to get up. It's so hard to get up. I just want to sit here. You know what I mean? David gets up to his feet. And said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and for a footstool for our God. 
I have made preparations to build, but God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name because you're a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me out of all my father's household to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as a leader, and from the house of Judah, my father's household, and from my father's sons. He was pleased to make me king over all Israel and out of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he perseveres in keeping my commands and my ordinances as he is today. So now in the sight of all of Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, observe and follow all the commands of the Lord your God so you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance to your descendants forever. By the way, they don't do that. The Israelites are in their land, but it's still a mess. Because we can't obey God fully until we're fully his. And on this side of eternity, we keep fighting to be fully his. And isn't it interesting that God, that David goes on, once he has the people gathered, David goes on telling people, you ready for this? Here's what he tells them. I'm special. What did Deuteronomy 17 say that the king was supposed to write next to his throne and remember? You're no more special than anybody else. And I'm telling you, if you get houses and you get wives and you get stuff and you build all this up, you're going to start thinking you're more blessed and you're more special than the other people. And then you're going to use that as a defense in your life. And that is not the defense that you use. The defense that you use is he's God, I'm not, I know that, and I keep surrendering to it. That's the defense Job gave when he was a righteous man and lost everything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know if David should have said these things. What he said wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong to say these things. They were all true. Probably. But again, when you look back at Deuteronomy 17, I have to question, why are you laying it out this way? He says, as for you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. This is a right statement. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Realize that now the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple and its buildings, treasuries, upper rooms, inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. The plans contained everything he had in mind for the courts of the Lord's house, all the surrounding chambers, the tree, treasuries of God's house, and the treasuries of what is dedicated. Also included were plans for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, all the works of service of the Lord's house, all the articles of the service for the Lord's house. David concluded, by the Lord's hand on me, he enabled me to understand everything in writing, all the details of the plan. Then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God, my God, is with you. He, will leave, he, will, he won't leave you or forsake you until all your work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. Here are the divisions of the priests and Levites, all the service of God's house. Every willing man of any skill will be at your disposal for the work and the leaders and all the people are at your every command. Then King David said to the assembly, my son Solomon, God has chosen him alone. He's young and inexperienced. The task is great because the temple will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So the best of my ability, I've made provisions in the house of my God. Moreover, because of my delight in the house of God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the house of the Lord over and above all that I've provided for, that, for the holy house. Now, this is a good thing. David shows that I wasn't storing up all this stuff for myself. I surrender it all back to God. In the midst of making this decision, David is committed all in. He's not like, you all be committed all in, but I'll keep my part. He's like, nope, we're all committed all in. That's commendable. He goes on and he says, now, who will volunteer to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the households, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They were like, we're committed. Then the Lord rejoiced, or then the people rejoiced because their leaders' willingness to give, for they had given the Lord with a whole heart. King David also rejoiced greatly. Here's what happens later. Everything looks great. Solomon goes on to build the temple, but when Solomon passes away, here's what happens in 1 King 12. They summoned Rehoboam. That's Solomon's son, and Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke difficult. 
Read that again. Why was it difficult? Because there was a temple to build and maintain. And when you decided to build a temple and maintain it, it's going to be tough. Everybody thinks home ownership's a great idea, right? So you can't call the landlord. <laughs> it's your bill. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, is, is, is home ownership a good idea? Yeah, it is. Long term. Sometimes not short term. And God's trying to get them to see the long term, not the short term. And so here you have the people saying, we would love to follow you, Rehoboam, but we're asking this question of you. Are you going to make this as hard for us as Solomon did? Are you going to burden us like Solomon did? Is this just going to continue to maintain and do this? You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And remember what Jesus said? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rehoboam replied, go home for three days and then I'll return. So the people left and King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to these people? And here's what happens. Solomon listens to the older elders, the leaders, and the old leaders tell him, yeah, you need to, you need to lighten up. You need to, you need to make, like, it has been harsh for them. And the wise older elders tell him, yeah, your dad was kind of rough. We, didn't really, we couldn't get him to check. You know, eh, don't, yeah, that's the right thing to do. And instead, Rehoboam said, I don't really like that answer. And so he went and got his friends and the young leaders and said, what do you guys think? And they're like, oh, make it harder for him. Get more out of them. They can give more. They can do more. And that's what Rehoboam does. And when he does it, the kingdom splits. And Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom and Rehoboam takes the southern kingdom and within just a couple of hundred years, there's no kingdom. See, we have to be very careful what we build. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 12. He looked and he said, but I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus was talking about himself he said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent for the, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you guys keep looking for rest. You keep looking to build something that will give you rest and peace and that will give you what you want. And I'm telling you, you won't find it outside of the Lord of the Sabbath who is me. There's something better here today than this temple we're in and it's me. He goes on and says in Acts 7, oh, by the way, that statement along with a couple of other ones got Jesus killed. Because see, when you start to challenge the things that people have built, they want to kill you. How dare you confront me, Rehoboam's young leaders? How dare they confront you, Rehoboam? You're the rightful king. See, we don't want to be challenged. We don't want anybody to push back on us because I'm trying to build something here and I got it figured out. And we just all need to get on board and we all need to do what I tell you to do. Not realizing the cost long term. So Jesus ends up being killed because he challenges the temple over and over again because he keeps looking at them and saying, this temple is nothing. I'm everything. In Acts 7, the first martyr does the same thing, Stephen. He says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they disposed the nations that, were, that, that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However... The Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what resting, or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. And after Stephen preaches this, they pick up stones, all the religious leaders, and they stone him and kill him to death for challenging their temple. How dare you challenge what I'm building? I, we heard from God. Our ancestors heard from God. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. And Stephen is looking at him going, you've missed the whole point of it all. You've missed the point of the tabernacle. You've missed the point of being delivered. You've missed the point of the, you've missed all of it because it's all about the stuff. It's not about God himself. In Acts 15, in the midst of a sermon, 
says this, and the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, after these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. He doesn't use the word temple there, it's tabernacle, it's the tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set that up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who does these things known from long ago. God's like, I'm going to come back, I'm going to build it, and I'm going to invite everybody, not just the Jews in. And you're not just going to use the foreigners as slaves to build the stuff you want. No, 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 no. They're going to be included in the family. Oh, and by the way, we live in a country that used slaves to build what we wanted. Has there been a cost to that? We're still paying it today. By the way, every country's done that, not just ours. Every country has used slave labor if you read about their history. Every single one, every time. And God is saying, no more. I'm trying to deliver the slaves, not put people under it. In John 2, the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus always went to the temple. Even though the temple at the time was such a mess, it was built by Herod, it it was just despicable what was being done. Jesus still faithfully went. I hear so many people say, well, I can't go to church because it's such hypocrites. And there's such, well, but didn't God call you to go to church? (laughs) To be with his people? Jesus went to temple, and there couldn't have been more hypocrites. Read this. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. We don't really sell anything here, just so you know. And he also found the money changers sitting there. We, don't, we just have an offering box. We don't even pass to change money. So you can't even make money and change in the offering plate. You know, have you ever seen people do that? They make change in the offering? Okay. And then it goes on. It says, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied, what sign of authority will you show for us doing these things? In other words, what right do you have? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the sanctuary, the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the statement Jesus made. It's never been about a physical temple. It's always been about the human heart. It's always been about that. And even though David is saying, I want you to build a temple, he's still wrestling because he keeps saying, surrender to your heart, surrender your heart, surrender your heart. Again, Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out those buying and selling in the temple. This is the second time he did it. He did it twice, by the way, at least two times, maybe more. You know, after the first time, you'd think, that's probably not a good idea to go back because they wanted to kill me the first time. And Jesus is like, no, if I'm going back, I'm going to clean house. He goes back and he does it again. He overturned the tables and the chairs of those selling doves and he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a place where we talk about God's word, where we discuss God's word, where we talk about the greatness of God and who he is and we thank him, we sing to him and we praise him. And you've just turned it into a business, something you're building. Jesus looked up. He saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins, a penny, basically. He stopped the entire service and he said, I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put more than all of them combined, or more than all of them. For all these people have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. We live in a culture that would tell this woman that's stupid. You're giving your money to the corrupt temple. Jesus just got done throwing out all the money changers and and just telling the scribes and the priests that they were demonic. And now you're going to give all your money to them? What a moron you are. I mean, you should give a little bit, but don't really surrender everything. See, God expects us to be all in. And this woman understood that to the best of her ability. She's like, well, this is all there is, so I'll give to this. And Jesus didn't look and go, oh, you stupid woman. That's not what he did. He stopped the service and he said, that's amazing that she would have faith that God could use this place, that he could use this body. It's amazing that any of you would have faith that God could use me or use us or use you. That's amazing because we don't deserve it. He goes on and says this in Matthew, then the devil took him to a holy city 
had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. First Corinthians says to run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. David and Solomon did not run from sexual immorality. They ran to it. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The temple do you read the price that it cost to build the temple? It was a great price. And God says the price to buy you was way greater than the price for that temple. Think about that for a minute. God gave his son for you, his best. Not gold and silver. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up, called his attention to the temple buildings. Look at the buildings, Jesus. Look at how marvelous this is. Look at the glory of God and what's been built. Then he replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be torn down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Then Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it, you're not alarmed. You're going to hear of famines and earthquakes. Then they will hand you over for persecution and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offense, betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. This ain't about a physical temple. Jesus is looking, he's saying, you're seeing these great buildings. That's nothing compared to what I want to do. I want to make human living stones, Peter says. I want to take people and build something that only I can build and only I can do in the human heart. And God says he wants that for you. And he says, you can do all this stuff. You can see all these rumors. You can panic. You can start to store up for yourself because, oh, there's a famine. Oh, there's this stuff. I got to hunker down. And God's like, nope. As you see those things coming, go out even more into the nations. Go out even more after people's hearts. Go after more of who God is, not less. Oh, and by the way, don't think that by doing that, he's going to give you rest and peace. What's coming is persecution. He'll give you rest and peace ultimately in heaven, but on this side of eternity, I can't guarantee anything. He goes on. The end of the Bible, it says this as we finish. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, already built. It's coming out of heaven, already built. Why? Because we've been storing up treasures in heaven, hopefully, that God's been using to build the city he's bringing to us. And then it says, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. I did not see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, are its sanctuary. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it because the Lord's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. God says that there's going to come a day when it becomes obvious that the walls that we've built, all the things that we built up to be distant from God will be ripped apart. There'll be no temple curtain. There'll be no wall. There'll be, the gates will be open of Jerusalem and we will actually enter in and we will have worship with our God one-on-one. -on -one. And he even says that we can have that now through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What are you building? And whatever you're building, have you considered and have you asked yourself, am I building this because I just want to do what God does. I want to follow him. He says to work six days and rest one. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to obey him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do what he wants. Or are you doing it because you think there's something that you can get on this side of eternity? Because you might get some things. But Jesus said it's all going to be torn down one day. And all that's going to be left is what he built. Can I just encourage you? 
Recognize that your body is a temple that you get to choose who will build it. And can I just encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus and allow him to come in and build what he wants to build. By the way, he'll be patient with you just like he was patient with David, just like he was patient with Solomon, just like he was patient with Peter. He will be patient with you as he builds into your life what only he can do. And in the end, we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Thank you for your building program. It's a building program that we can't control. You're building something that we can't build ourselves. We have to trust you. Lord, I'm thankful that you're patient with us, that you allow us, kind of like a kid, building something for their their family when they're young and they bring it and it doesn't even look like it's supposed to look like, yet a father looks at it and says, thank you, I love you. It's the act of bringing it to you and truly surrendering that you're looking for, not the thing we bring and not the thing we've built. And so, Father, I pray that if anyone's listening right now, they'll realize that they don't have to get themselves built up to come to you. That's the opposite of grace. The Bible says there's no way they can build themselves. They admit that. They surrender. They admit that they've sinned, that they've broken your law, that they're separated from you. And they come and they surrender. And they say, God, please build something out of my life. I surrender to you. I trust you. And I believe that you will build something for your glory through this temple that you are now given. And so, Lord, if anyone here is not surrendered to what you did on the cross, that you died in their place, you came back from the dead to prove that you were God and that you can raise their dead life from nothing to something, I pray today would be the day they surrender. And for those of us who are called your followers, I pray that we would look back through these verses and really question what we're trying to build. Are we trying to build for you? Are we building what you want? Or are we just building what we think we want? And Lord, I pray that we would come to you. I pray that we'd lean into the body. I pray that we would participate together in having that conversation so then in the end we'll realize one day how glorious and beautiful you fully are. Lord, I thank you for our church. I thank you for this body. I thank you for the people that you've changed and transformed and the people that we've been able to send out all around the world. I thank you for the commitment to missions that we continue to give. And Lord, you've provided abundantly for us and we are so grateful. Help us to be your witnesses. Amen.